Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you? I'm doing very well. It's good to be here in the black box, Crawl Space Studios. Boom. Yep. Yeah. Very nice. How was your weekend? Oh, my weekend was just great, Lance. Excellent. But you know what? We've got a wonderful interview for this episode. Yeah, Kenneth Maines, Detective Kenneth Maines. He joins us and he speaks about his law enforcement background, speaks about his independent private investigation services, and and a few other things. He's just such a genuine, passionate guy about what he does. Those who are obsessed with cold cases need to follow Detective Maines on Twitter and on social media. You may know him from The Hunt for the Zodiac Killer on History Channel that aired in 2018. And he also runs the ISOC, which is the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases conference that's happening in Albany, New York, April 15th and 16th that we are attending, Lance. We will be there. It's going to be very cool to sit with our peers, professionals, people who are in the investigative world, law enforcement, and to be invited by Kenneth Maines to do this was really humbling. Yeah, he's a great guy, and he is obsessed with cold cases and really has dedicated his life to cold cases. So this interview, this conversation working with Kenneth Maines is really right up our alley. And he's still a rocker. He'll still (laughs) rock out with the best of them. An important note here that he sent us after the interview, Lance, I think this is kind of... uh, endearing perhaps and very indicative of his behavior it absolutely is and he we went through his schooling and kind of his background uh leading up to this point in his life and he mentions how he left college at one point to pursue law enforcement but he had to send us an email and tell us that he quit college in his third year to take the police job but he did go back to finish his degree eight years later and he just he sent that to us because he didn't want kids to think that he just quit school. Yeah, and you didn't make that up. He literally wrote, just didn't want kids to hear that I quit school. <laughs> he did, but he finished later and received his criminal justice bachelor's degree. Yep, very and, important for people to know, always finish what you start and never give up. And he signs off respectfully, Kenneth L. Maines. He's the best. He's the best. Yeah. And I think people are going to really enjoy this conversation. Absolutely. And uh, in case you're looking for old Crawl Space episodes on the Apple Podcasts feed, Lance, I have to tell you, not all of them are there anymore. I was just checking the couch cushions for old Crawl Space episodes. Yeah, well, they're not there either, but Uh they will be on Stitcher Premium. So if you go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code MMM, that stands for Missing Maura Murray. That's one of our other podcasts, Lance. And that also has a relationship with Stitcher Premium, too. Yeah, so you'll get all the old Crawl Space episodes, and if you're a new listener, we, we understand where we've got a lot of them a uh, brand new influx and in new listeners so if you want to go back to the old catalog you got to go to stitcher premium to get them all and they're all ad free as well as the new episodes that are uploaded to stitcher are all ad free for crawlspace and it's a small price to pay you get your first month for free it's only 4.99 a month after that think about the things that you spend 4.99 on uh coffee coffee I mean, this is a month. A bagel a day, some, you know. Exactly. Netflix is more than this. Hulu's more than this. But anywho, you can go there, you can spend your four ninety nine a month, and you get information that you didn't get with the regular feed. The Missing More Murray creator commentary, for example. We go back to our early episodes of Missing More Murray, and we talk over, kind of like a director commentary. 
and we correct information, we give ourselves some grief, we add new information or updated information based on what we know today as opposed to where we were at three years ago. Yeah, and people are loving them. We're getting a lot of comments about it. Also, Empty Frames, our art crime podcast, Lance, is only available on Stitcher Premium at this point. You know why? It was too hot for the regular feed. It's too premium. Too premium, too too hot. It's too hot. Too hot. So <laughs> hopefully you enjoy this episode, this conversation with Kenneth Maines. And if you are in the Albany, New York area, this is a slam dunk. You got to buy tickets. The link is in the show notes. But uh, you want to check out this conference. It's going to be a lot of fun. And if you're not in the Albany area, maybe rent a car and uh, get to the Albany area. April's a great time to be in Albany. It's a beautiful time of year. So thanks for listening and follow us on Twitter at CrawlspacePod. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. doesn't mean i know more than you guys and that's how i looked at it with uh with a lot of these you know amateur detectives you can call them amateur if you want but doesn't mean they don't know more than than i do so i take all the help that i can get i can safely say that you probably know more than we do <laughs> nah. well you can say it but i would never say that <laughs> well that's very humble of you <laughs> uh, it's just the truth you know, that's that's how I feel. So, well, I mean, there is something to, uh, you know, p- pouring into these cases and, and going over every detail in, in podcast form and putting them out online and hearing what people say. It's not just one person or two people uh, doing the investigation in that case. It's a whole community of people that you're kind of drumming up to to help. So well, and also to guide. Right. Un- unintentionally, you become the guide for this community, and whether you like it or not, you you become a voice to the community, and they do a lot of what they do based on what you say. So in that way, it, it can definitely be beneficial. I mean, I can't imagine that that uh, law enforcement, all, all these detectives, cold case detectives, people who work in cold case units, can put the amount of time in that uh, someone who is podcasting on one case can do. That's exactly right. That, you're exactly right. Um, people don't realize, you know, detectives have other stuff coming in. They don't have that one case. They don't have that luxury like I have or you guys have. We can sit on that one case for years. They can sit on it, you know, but they're not actively investigating it. Um, and a lot of times that's how cases go cold is because it's on your desk. It's fresh. You know, there's there's leads coming in. But then when those leads dry up and, you know, you don't know where to go, it kind of goes to the corner of your desk and then eventually it goes in a drawer and then eventually into a vault. Um, and that's how cases go cold. And it's it's my job, I think, to not allow that to happen, um, to always be working on those cases, um, much like you guys do. And um, I think this true crime explosion is good. Because it gets more eyes and more ears and and, uh, gets the conversation going about these cases. And I think that's very important. A lot of cops don't feel that. Um, And I'm not sure if you guys ran into that or not. But I have, as being a cop, you know, they're very territorial about their cases. They don't want people coming in there and saying, we can do it better than you. So you have to be able to be very finicky and say, it's not that I'm better, but I can look at things maybe differently. And, uh, you know, sometimes they'll allow you into that case and 
sometimes, unfortunately, not. Now, you said you were a police officer. I just want to go back to how you got started doing this independent investigation. So basically, where do you come from and how did you get to where you're at, where you're at today? You know, basically, I'll start all the way back to when I was uh, a kid watching Unsolved Mysteries with my dad eating popcorn and drinking milkshake. That's when it all began. You know, even uh, I'd watch those cases and I'd want to investigate them. And I would read constantly about uh, serial killers and and mysteries, Loch Ness Monster. And I always knew I wanted to be a detective. Um, so when I graduated high school, I was I think I graduated second from the bottom and uh, uh, lucky to graduate. I didn't apply myself at all. A lot of suspensions, a lot of fights, um, you know, not doing what I was supposed to do as a rock and roller, you know, you know, <laughs> long hair, listening to Metallica. Nice. Um, but I went to uh, the Marine Corps right out of high school. And that kind of put me on the straight and narrow. And I always knew that it was going to make me a better person. And so when I got out of the Marine Corps, I went to college and got my degree in criminal justice. And I took the test for a uh, Williamsport City uh, police officer. I never really wanted to be a cop. I just wanted to be a detective. Um, but I knew that you had to start somewhere. So I took the test, never thinking I was going to pass it. I just took it for experience. And I scored number two, and they hired me. And I hadn't finished college yet. I had uh, three years in. I still had like uh, 30 credits. And it was a dilemma for me. Do I quit college and go this route? And uh, I decided, yeah, um, I was going to quit college and take the police job. And very quickly, I'd say I had a year or two on patrol. And I got specially assigned as an undercover narcotics agent. And I did that for... Oh, probably the next four years. And then the FBI came to me and they asked me whether I would work undercover uh, for them. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's, now, a, that's an honor. Yeah. That's so cool. It how, was. How did that happen? How did what, what did they notice in you that meant to them that you would be good at that? Maybe it was just long hair and tattoos. I don't know. Uh, but I, w I would like you. I was very humbled. And initially I had said no, because I was very comfortable working undercover where I was at, um, which was for the county drug task force. I went home and slept on. I'm like, what are you doing? It's the FBI. You know, this is your dream. You know, do it. And uh, I did it. I worked for them for the next three years. And it was uh, it was one of the best, if not the best experience of my life. They treated me uh, so great. That's basically where I ended my first stage of my career was right then and there. What got me into the cold case stuff is, you know, I'd been working drugs for the FBI and for the task force for, you know, eight years and I was getting burned out and it's not what I wanted to do. I always wanted to do these cold cases. So one night I'm sitting at home, I'm divorced now because I got long hair and tattoos and I've been working undercover and that's not who my wife married. <laughs> so I'm at home, you know, drinking some whiskey on the computer, looking at missing persons cases from my area. And sure enough, this girl pops up, her name's Dawn Miller, and she's missing for 15 years from my department. 
And I'm like, how do I not know this? I've been there for eight years and we have a missing person. There's no flyers. There's no nothing. So the next day I go in and I talk to my captain and I say, you know, who is this girl? Is she missing? He's like, and he's been there 25 years. And he's like, I have no idea. And I said, well, I need to file. So I get the file. It's two, three pages long, missing person. Um, Last scene with two guys who said they took her home and dropped her off. Um, I said to my captain, I want to investigate this. And he said, absolutely not. You're a dope cop. You know, you're not a, a detective. And I was like, that offended me. You know, I, hey, we don't need to be splitting hairs. I'm a cop. doesn't matter if I'm a dope cop. I'm a patrol cop. I'm a cop. And nobody's looking at this missing person case. So long story short. Is it got the case? Um, within two months, I had a guy uh, had the two guys. I interviewed them. Uh, the one guy hung himself shortly after I interviewed him. The other guy uh, confessed to me and took me to where he buried the body. I spent the night there on the ground next to uh, where he said she was. It was freezing out, but there was no way I was leaving that area. And uh, brought in the dogs. The dogs alerted. We dug it up and nothing was there. Uh, so, wow. And you said the name was Don Miller? Correct. Okay. Yes. And I'm, I'm looking at the charlieproject.org and it's Don Marie Miller. And that was in October 24th, 1992. I'm looking at the right one. That's correct. Belafonte, Pennsylvania. Correct. Wow. Okay. So the indication here is that... She was there at one point, and it, she was moved because the dogs yeah. the dogs reacted. Yes, yeah. And I'm sorry, was he with you? Uh, he had taken me, you know, to that area and showed me. But uh, I called the district attorney and said, "Hey, listen, this guy confessed. He took us to where the body is. You want me to put cuffs on him?" And they said, "No, not yet. Not till you find the body." So we let him go. I spent the night there because I didn't want him coming back right. to move that body, um, and that's why I did that. But little did I know it was already moved probably years before that. So the other guy, the guy who hung himself, must have done it? I, that's what I believe, yes. Wow. That's a crazy story. And how, what was the relation between the man who claimed to murder her and, and her? Boyfriend. It was her boyfriend. Okay. Yep. What had happened is he was going to break up with her, and so... Unfortunately, she lied to him and said, you can't because I'm pregnant. And I don't believe she ever was pregnant. And that was the stressor that allowed him to uh, to murder her. Jesus. Wow. And now this person is not cooperating with law enforcement? No, he, he got an attorney. And, uh, you know, I, I still believe that there's enough there um, to charge him. But the uh, the district attorneys don't. And I don't make it a habit to second guess attorneys. Uh, just like I don't want them to second guess my investigation. Right. If they believe enough evidence is there, they'll do it. If not, they won't. So, you know, but that was my first cold case. Right. Um, and I, like I said, I had solved that rather quickly. And so we had a second cold case in that county that everybody knew about. And it was the murder of Gail Matthews and her five-year-old daughter, Tamara Burkheiser. Now, this was a very highly publicized case. Um, so the district attorney 
called me and said, hey, would you be interested in working on this case? I am impressed on what you did on that last case. Would you do it? And I said, absolutely. So again, I went to my captain and I said, hey, I want to work this case. He said, absolutely not. This is the second time I got this. Now I'm furious. I'm like, listen, I just solved this other case and you made me do it on my own time. Um, I couldn't even do it during normal work hours. Um, I did that. And now you won't allow me to work this case that nobody's working. I said, it's not right. And he said, well, that's just the way it is. So I went back to the district attorney and I told him and he said, you know what? I'll hire you as a county detective to solve that case. He says, that's the good news. Bad news is you're going to take a $50,000 pay cut if you want to do it. Oh, man. What's 50000 amongst friends? I said, absolutely. I'll yep. do it uh, because money is not everything. And that was 10 years ago. So uh, at the time, you know, when the district attorney presented that and hired me, you know, I was younger. I was cocky. I just solved that last case. And I said, I'll have this solved within uh, six months. And here I am 10 years later still working on that case. What made that case so difficult to solve? They had arrested a guy twice for it, the same guy, and both times they let him go. More than likely, he probably is the person responsible. But uh, when you don't have a lot of physical evidence, you know, it's tough. You know, it's beyond a reasonable doubt for a reason. And uh, you have to be able to prove that. That's a that's a great uh, point that you just raised. We have a lot of people who ask us questions or they'll just state online that uh, something was given to law enforcement or law enforcement knows about a location and they just can't believe that an arrest hasn't been made. And Tim and I use our best judgment and we say, well, you know, law enforcement doesn't want to move forward with anything unless they have something very tangible or else that will be their only opportunity. And then they'll sort of blow that opportunity if, if something goes wrong or if they obtain something illegally. Is that a legit concern or are there other factors that go into police holding back a little bit until until they know, you know, for sure that they're going to make a move. Well, I think it's it's there's many factors that play into why there isn't an arrest or why they're not letting information go. Um, some of it, I mean, is ego. Some of it from police officers perspective is ego. Some of it is because they are doing the right thing and they are not going to make an arrest um, until they have everything. That's one thing that I learned being a cop is. I never made an arrest on any case unless I was 100% because that's the worst thing you can do is take a guess and put somebody in jail for life. Um, not even just putting them in jail for life, labeling them a murderer. So now they can't even go to the grocery store without people pointing the finger at them and they might be innocent. So that's one thing that I've always I'm very cautious of. You, you never point fingers or accuse unless you know hundred percent. You might have an opinion, um, but you better have the facts to back that up as to why. Okay. So speaking of the facts to back it up, one, one case that we work on is uh, Maura Murray's disappearance. And we also work on uh, Brianna Maitland's disappearance. In Maura's case, there is no trace of her since her disappearance. And in Brianna's case, there really isn't as like, there's, there's still no trace of her, no physical evidence that's been found. There's no trace of her. Both their cars were found on the side of the road. The biggest difference is that Brianna's, it does seem like she was forcibly removed from that car. In Morris case, that is not uh, the case. Right. That That's, that's the biggest difference there. 
what what do you do speaking of evidence and and gathering information as a law law enforcement official what do you do when there's when there's no evidence i know that sounds like such a broad question but there's yeah, where do you start where do a, you start as a yeah. cold investigating it well and i think maybe my approach was would be different than a lot of other approaches my approach is getting it out okay. getting it out with guys like you you know getting the word out because uh you can only knock on so many doors or you know and canvas the neighborhood um i've found that a lot of times when people have information they will not come to you but if you go to them and you ask or it's over a computer people feel safe being on the other side they'll type it you know the you're not asking them face to face so i use all of those to my advantage and i, I you try Sometimes it works, sometimes it don't. But you, one thing that you can't do is give up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you hit a brick wall, you just got to keep pushing through it. I mean, it's just the way it is. That's the way I was raised, and I know there's a lot of people like me out there. You know, you just keep keep pushing. You push through it until you get the answers. That's cool. Uh, it reminds me of your five rules that we saw on your website, and Tim read the five rules, and he was like, these are really cool, but... After he read them, we were both like, we really need him to say them because I think that's going <laughs> to it's just going to be a lot more badass. <laughs> what are your what are your five rules? One of them is certainly never give up. You know that I, I abide by that principle. And that's been um, taught to me by the Marine Corps. My father, who was a Vietnam vet in the Marine Corps. Um, that's just the way I was raised. Also, you know, always put your kids above anything else. Family is always the most important thing. This, this cold case stuff is my life. It's what I've always wanted to do, and it's what I always just dreamt of doing. So other people have hobbies. I wish I did have a hobby. I wish I could go play golf. I, I'm searching for a hobby. I can't <laughs> find one. You know, my hobby is cold cases and investigation. And I feel that if, if you have a little bit of talent but a lot of drive and passion, in any vocation that you have, you'll be successful. And that's what I think has allowed me to be successful in what I do. That's awesome. And I, I wouldn't say that Lance and I have any more than a little bit of talent. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't <laughs> say that about me too. <laughs> uh, but uh, so tell us about the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases. This is a, yeah. uh, a conference yeah. happening in April. Yeah, the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases got started when I got stuck on that Gail Matthews case. As I said, you know, six months, I thought I would have it cracked. Well, I got stuck. And I'm like, what do I do? What do detectives do when they get stuck on a case? One thing I knew was not going to happen was I was not going to put that case back in the drawer because that's how it got cold to begin with. So what do we do? And I said, you know what? I'm going to start an organization with various disciplines, which is very important to me that the case is looked at not just through a homicide detective's eyes. I wanted it looked at through academia, behavioral science, forensic science, pathology, um, all of that. So because everybody sees things different. So that was very important to me. And out of that, I created I started, you know, being a uh, fan of true crime or mysteries, I knew who the best were. 
You know, I didn't have to research it. I knew Henry Lee. I knew Cyril Weck, Warner Spitz, Mark Safferick, Joe Kenda, all those people, and Mary Ellen O'Toole, Bob Keppel. I knew those names. So I just started reaching out to them. I sent them, you know, a heartfelt letter saying, hey, this is why I'm creating this. I know there's the VDOC Society, and I love them. Um, Richard Walter, who was a co-founder of them, he, I went to his house, spoke cases with him. Um, but I think there needs to be more, you know, and that started the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases. I started getting responses back from Henry Lee, Cyril Weck, and they all believed in what I was, what I, my vision. And that started it and it's grown now. We're in our fifth, sixth year and uh, we keep growing and we keep looking at cases. And I think of it as a, a very great organization that keeps the spotlight on some of these cases. So this is April 15th and 16th of this year. It's at the College of St. Rose in Albany, New York. And what can people expect when they go? Well, at our conferences, what they can expect is to learn something about cold cases. Um, that's the most important thing. But it's also a great opportunity to not only meet some of these people that you have just heard about or seen on TV, um, you can talk cases with them um, and really just network. And if you're there and you talk about a certain case with somebody, maybe they can see something that will help you. So it's open to the general public. Anybody can come, you know, and that's very important to me as well is before there was some pushback that we should just limit it to law enforcement. And that's when I was in law enforcement. I just retired in March. So, you know, in the past it was, well, let's just limit it. I don't believe in that because like I said before, I think amateurs who just are not cops can see and know just as much as cops can. Um, so I certainly try to steer away from it just being law enforcement. Anybody can come, they can learn and they can have a great time. Well, that's great. Yeah, I think I think this is an awesome conference, and we are thrilled to be a part of it. And we're going to do a, a, a speaking panel with Mike Morford and John Lorden about uh, how true crime podcasters and uh, true crime uh, YouTubers, specifically like John Lorden, can kind of interact with families of missing people or murder victims and also law enforcement in bringing light to these cold cases. And I think that is extremely important, and uh, I'm I'm so glad that you guys are going to be there and doing that. Now, this uh, the AISOCC has partnered with Sorensen Forensics. Correct. Yeah, that's really cool. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So you know, ASOC, we have our own lab, which is run by our DNA expert Susanna Ryan, and we strictly use the MVAC system. And with uh, Jared Bradley kindly donating a uh, system to us to use. And if law enforcement has evidence that they need tested, we'll do it pro bono. And Susanna will collect that DNA through the MVAC. We partner with Sorensen Labs so they can um, extract DNA. And it's all done pro bono. And uh, I think more law enforcement need to take advantage of that. 
Yeah, because we we often uh, kind of bang our heads on the table saying, uh, how is there no DNA in this case? Um, specifically, we, we're talking about one one case uh, w- with a filmmaker who is trying to raise awareness for this um, person that she's called Suitcase Jane Doe, and she was a, a Jane Doe that is found uh, in Pennsylvania, um, cut basically... Uh, half of her body in one place and then her legs found about 50 or 60 miles away but she's un- unidentified still and we we often think how is it possible that they haven't put her dna into maybe ged match or or one of these sites to try to move something or, forward or she was wrapped in a blanket she was in a like half of her body her torso part was in the suitcase wrapped in a blanket wrapped in a garment bag it just seems so sort of haphazard. We were talking about how how is there no DNA from the killer? How is there no hair follicles? How is there... Or even just identifying the Jane Doe. Or, like, yeah, or, or just identifying the Jane Doe. Yeah. It just seems like this one sort of fell through all the cracks. Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of cases like that. Um, but, you know, that's why we are here to bring yeah. light to them and try to solve them. Yeah, I know. We we could geek out on, and that's a terrible way to put it, but we could really talk about something like Suitcase Jane Doe. And the last time we interviewed this filmmaker who brought it to our attention, we realized that we were talking we were talking about other other um, unidentified females in that particular area around that time frame, like within the past twenty years, because there were a couple of other ones that were similar. And it was this really remarkable moment where. Tim was looking something up and it was so similar to what the filmmaker Jennifer was talking about. They thought they were talking about the same thing. And it turned out there was a third person that was so similar to the new one that Jennifer had. And we had this on air moment where we were like, Oh, that that's incredible. Like, yeah, yeah, those are from Ben Salem, Pennsylvania. And one of them is Beth Doe. And uh, the other one doesn't have a nickname like that, but she was then found Salem Jane Doe then I guess we'd call it. Okay, yeah, yeah. and she was found uh, she was pregnant and was found headless, I believe. The pregnant part was where like that they, they were both pregnant right around the same term. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other one suitcase Jane Doe was in Downingtown by the uh, Twin Tunnels. I don't know if you're familiar with that area. Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. That's close to me. Huh. That's interesting. Well, we are planning a trip out there. Maybe we can uh, look you up and Oh, that'd be awesome. Brilliant. That would be really cool. Take you, take you out to the scene. Yeah. 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 I'm in. Yeah, That'd be very cool. Awesome. That's great. All right, great. Yeah. So you also say that when you investigate, you add a personal, you do it in a thorough manner, and, and you give it a thorough look, and you say a personal and thorough look. What is it that is, if someone approaches you and they say, I have this cold case, what is it that makes it, what do you do different that makes it personal? Well, I mean, how I approach a cold case is number one is when I get the reports, uh, I, I pour through those reports and how I do it is I read through it once like a story. I let it come to me like a a book so I can see all the characters, can see everything and just let it play through like a book. Then I go back through it. And as soon as I see something that just makes me have a little hesitant, I write it down. Um, cause there's a reason why it's making me like question something and I'll go through the whole report again. Now I'll go back and all those little hiccups that I saw, that's where I start my investigation, interview those people and go from there. And 
it's been effective for me. Um, you know, there's there's a reason why when you read things and you question it, there's a reason for that. And that is a great place to start uh, your investigation. So that's your instinct that you're relying on, essentially. That's pretty uh, that's impressive. Well, I think everybody has that. Yeah. I think when you read a police report and I'll give you an example, I'm working a uh, homicide case from Pittsburgh from 1993 where the 73-year-old woman was murdered. And they did a neighborhood canvas like a week later. And a guy standing on a street corner, they ask him, hey, do you remember, you know, July 16th, what you were doing? Do you remember hearing anything? And he stated, yeah, I was laying in bed. And actually at 343 in the morning, I thought I heard somebody stumbling down the road, you know, by my window. Well, that, that right there makes me think, how's he know 3.43 a.m.? That's very specific time, um, and it's a week later. It's not like it was the next night after the homicide. So, you know, you check that down, there, and he's somebody I want to talk to. Why are you being that specific a week later to know at 3.43 a.m.? Wow. So how did that turn out? What did— uh... Well, I just, ironically, uh, I just got a letter today from him, so I haven't looked at it. So, <laughs> do you want to do a live opening right now? <laughs> no, not. <laughs> so, you were on a, a TV show uh, about the Zodiac case, the hunt for the Zodiac killer, and it was on the History Channel. Um, is uh, h- how did that go? Uh, it was a very unique experience, to say the least. This whole TV thing that's starting to happen, um, you know, with me is uh, new, but it was a very good time. Uh, it was a great time, although it was more of a scripted TV show, it seemed like, than it was me actually investigating. And I think a lot of that had to do with the access to the police reports. When it comes to Zodiac, they're guarded. Yeah. And uh, they're not giving away a lot of information. And I think that sometimes is where we butted heads. And I got some nasty, you know, emails from some of the police officers that were involved in the Riverside um, case with Sherry Joe Bates. They felt that I was uh, not very sensitive to the police officers investigation. And. You know, I made a comment on the show, you know, how's that working out for you, buddy? And they didn't like that very much. And I understood. But on the other end, you know, it's more about the victim. And it's more about Sherry Joe Bates than it'll ever be about you being a cop. Right. Yep. But, you know, the history show was great. They treated me fantastic. Cargo 7 Pictures was great. I got to go to all these places, Lake Tahoe, Santa Barbara, that I've always wanted to go. But I never had the money to go. And here they sent me there for free. So nice. it was a great time. Yeah, and you get to work on something that you're super passionate about. And you have a, a team behind you with a lot of resources to help you out, which is really And that cool. was the thing. is When I was a teenager, I read Robert Gray Smith's book on the Zodiac. So to be able to actually quasi-investigate it, <laughs> uh, it, was a, uh, it was a dream come true. You know, So it, it was great. The thing is why I say quasi is because you don't really – you don't have access to everything. So it makes it very difficult. And especially with a case like that, it's so encompassing. And I think if we were given access to everything, I think me and Sal could have solved that case. I really do. And you, people can say that's cocky or arrogant, what it is. I, I think it's confidence. 
because we had the passion there. We had the people and we just needed that access. And uh, unfortunately, San Francisco didn't want to play ball. And I understand. So I'm not going to badmouth them. But it's been such a long time. It makes you wonder what they're holding back at this point. It must be something pretty good, right? Look, it's one of those big cases. And those big cases, you have to keep tight, I guess, because if something gets out, and let's say there is an arrest made, that's just one more thing that you're going to have to overcome to get a conviction. So I, I, I understand it. But part of me is like you, and I've said this a million times, after a case has been cold for so long, what's it hurt to let out that information? Because it obviously is not getting solved. Yeah. So release it. You, you don't know what can happen. You do know what's going to happen if you keep it close to your vest. Nothing, just like it has for the past 50 years. Um, so I see both ends of that, but I am more on the side of let's get it out there and let people solve the case. This is so refreshing. <laughs> no, this is great. I mean, I think yeah. we, you know, we we run into too many, um, you know, in the Maura Murray case specifically, uh, the, there is a group of ex-law enforcement guys. They're called the New Hampshire League of Investigators. And uh, one of them said this, talking about the Oxygen show, but the disappearance of Maura Murray, called it a quote-unquote documentary. And, you know, they, they didn't want to talk to anyone. They didn't want to give their information to anyone but the attorney general. And we're closing in on 15 years now. And it's really frustrating to me and Lance because we have these conversations a lot saying, you know, the, this this old school method hasn't worked in this case yet. And I get it. And we totally respect the the way that, that it was and, and that method of holding information back. But... In a case like Maura Murray's, 15 years old, what's the harm in opening the file a little bit? Yeah, and not not releasing, not selling the farm on the whole thing, but just a little give and take. We'll give you, you give us, we'll work together on this. There's this dismissive attitude that I think really frustrates Tim and I where we're automatically written off as trying to profit or trying to exploit something. That was just yeah. us, us venting. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. You know, and, and to that point, you know, I'll give you an example of something that I just done recently that everybody was like, you know, shocked is that Gail Matthews case that I told you that I was working. The only person that's really alive anymore is Gail Matthews sister, Julie. And obviously over the 10 years that I've worked on this case, uh, me and her have become tight. Um, she's almost like a sister to me. And because I, I treated her with respect the way she should be treated and not shunned her. So when I retired from law enforcement, I obviously had the whole case file. And she asked me if she could look at it. I said, absolutely. So she comes into my office every week. She sits down with the police reports. And granted, I don't, you know, I, I pick and choose what I want to give her as in she's not going to see crime scene photos least of the bodies, but everything else. I show her interviews. You know why? Because she deserves it. She deserves to know what happened to her sister. And I am not going to be one of those arrogant cops that hold it back and say, you can't have anything. We don't know anything. We're not sharing anything. That's not right. Because in the grand scope of things, it's about being a decent human being. And that's what I try to be. And it's not all focused on being a cop. And so I, I share stuff with her so she knows. 
Do you find this is kind of shifting closer towards this uh, attitude than the tight-lippedness uh, that we were just talking about? Like, uh, you know, it's 2019 now. Are, are, are people in law enforcement moving closer to... I, I think that's a good point. And I think that they are. I hope that they are. Um, because when something doesn't work, you have to change it in order for it to proceed and work correctly. And I think this is. But, you know, honestly, I don't give a damn whether it is or not. I'm going to do it my way, the way that I feel is right, the way I feel that it's being a decent human being to these victims' families. And that's the way I'll do it. And if I take heat for it, I got broad shoulders. So I'm used to it. That's that personal service that you talk about. You invite you invite her in and you, you don't like you're just following your you're following your own creed. You're trying to be a good person and you understand the importance of allowing this woman's sister to get certain pieces of information because the alternative is no hope whatsoever. Exactly. And that when you talk to these victims' families, which you guys I'm sure have, they look at you with such void in their eyes, all they want is someone to listen to them, someone to return their phone calls, someone to keep them updated on the status of their case. Um, and they just want hope, just like you said. And if I can give them that hope, then I will. So the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases is available to the public. So it's it's a free event for, for all listeners? Well, I won't say free. Okay. <laughs> they can certainly register on our, uh, <laughs> our website, www.asoc.com. Okay. Um, you know, but to that extent, I have dropped the prices by 50% this year just because I, I want more people involved and I don't want it to be strictly law enforcement. I do want law enforcement to come like they have in the past and to learn but I also I'm opening it up to everybody because, again, I think it's important that everybody get involved in solving these cases. This is going to be great. So uh, registration deadline is April 2nd, 2019. You've got a lot of great guests on the list here. Aphrodite Jones. A lot of these titles are, are great. Uh, criminologists, forensic pathologists. I can't wait to meet these people. I can't wait to meet. Um, who's down there towards the bottom? <laughs> Yeah, he's going to be Lance uh, Reimersman. <laughs> I can't, but I do. I want to thank you. It's changed on the website. It's awesome. I saw that this morning. I changed it for you. I can't tell you how hard I laughed with my girlfriend in a public place when I saw that. That I've seen. Well, first Tim Tim sent me a text and he said, um, he was like, "You want to see a crazy uh, misspelling of your name?" Because I've seen crazy misspellings of my name and yeah. misinterpretations. That is just I'm I, I can't even talk about it right now because I'll start crying laughing again. It's it's too much. It's too good. Well, it was corrected real quick. Oh, thank <laughs> thank you for both correcting it and for and for it in the first place. It was it I I can't remember the last time I laughed like belly laughed like that. That was amazing. Yeah, and and uh, to your point, I mean, we do have some great guests, and I look forward. Some of them, you know, I obviously know Aphrodite Jones. We worked on a uh, pilot. TV show together, film some scenes, uh, really great person. Um, you know, obviously Henry Lee and Cyril Weck, I've known for a number of years now, but you know, people that I'm very interested in, um, talking to is like Diane Lake. Yeah. You know, I'd like to know more about Charles Manson and, and, and that take DB Cooper with, uh, Tom K and, 
Amelia Earhart with Rick Gillespie. I mean, he led all those expeditions uh, to the island where he believes that she was marooned on. Uh, I want to know about that stuff. So that's why I invited him. Yeah, that's awesome. That's bringing up the old folklore. I of, can't uh, wait. True crime. That's great. Yeah. And so each, each person kind of has their own panel. Well, I'm not sure how we're going to do it yet, um, whether they're just going to speak uh, with PowerPoints or, or how they're going to do it. But uh, we're open to suggestions and, and doing whatever it takes to uh, educate and also uh, entertain in a way. In yeah. the past, it's always been academics, academia, you know, and sometimes uh, I wanted to get away from that because I want to know about the story about Amelia Earhart. Why do you believe that she crashed on that island? D.B. Cooper, why do you think that he's still alive? Those kinds of mysteries, I love them. And basically, I'm saying, hey, it's my conference. I'm going to do what I want to do. So <laughs> like, that, that's why I got it. It's love like it. your your sandbox, <laughs> your, your right. corner of the sandbox. Now, what's good about this conference is on the third day, which isn't publicized, is when all of our ASOC members stay an extra day and we get presented uh, cases from law enforcement and we help them. And that's not open to the public. That's just for ASOC members that are consulting or review board members. And we do that every year to help law enforcement, usually within that area on their cases. That's awesome. That yeah, is very great. cool. That yeah. is really cool. Hopefully we can uh, check back in with you after that and you can talk about it as much as you can without giving sure. anything away. But I think uh, I think listeners would be really interested in hearing how that turns out. I think so, yeah. too. Absolutely. So I can't wait. April 15th and 16th, we are speaking with Mike Morford and John Lorden. And uh, it's going to be a great conversation. And my God, can't wait to uh, meet you in person. Know, it's going to be so fun. <clears throat> really is. So yeah, thank yeah. you very much. I have Hi. I have Hi. two quick questions. Sure. Um, one, I just want to find out if you're still uh, that rocker type. <laughs> showing the oh, showing the tats. All right, Thanks. Yeah, well, that's absolutely. It's an, an affirmative. And <laughs> did you know that they are currently looking for a new host for the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries? I, Perhaps you should you throw your name that. in the ring. Yeah, absolutely. I had uh, I had just written a post about that on Facebook before the day before they announced that, how much I would love to host that show. And ironically, I saw that. And I said, that's, that's perfect for me. But uh, there's a lot of interest in that. So I would be uh, very humbled if I got that. That would, I mean, wouldn't that just be a life dream? Yeah. Like, oh, that'd be absolutely. It. <laughs> absolutely. You know, and you know, what's great is like today um, watching Unsolved Mysteries is so much different than when I was a kid. Because now as soon as an episode is done airing, I get on the Internet. And see if there's an update, number one, to see if it's solved. And if it's not, I send an email if there's a web page saying, hey, if you want help, let me know. And that's how much interest I have in those unsolved mysteries. So That's great. That's yeah. incredible. Well, we're uh, we're thrilled to, to know you and, and uh, meet you and, and to be a part of this, uh, this conference. It's going to be a blast. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you for having me on. And anytime you guys have any questions about anything, you want to bounce any ideas off me, I'm always uh, open. Just uh, shoot me an email and I look forward to meeting you guys, really. Thank you.